We are living in a national emergency. So a lot of people have described this moment that we're in right now as a national emergency. This is a national emergency. It's not a national emergency. It's really a global emergency. Okay. But it's an emergency, right? I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle, Washington's KODX. Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI. Round Mountain, California's KKRN. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. We also stream for your listening convenience and pleasure on... The internets every day, coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days away, five days a week as the national emergency continues. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today uh, as the beleaguered Trump administration. And I think that's putting it nicely, isn't it, Desi well, Doyen? yeah, Beleaguered, definitely. but incredibly still in office. The still-in-office Trump administration is facing another federal court-imposed deadline now in just under a week to reunite thousands of detained immigrant children with their parents after they were separated at the border under Trump's so-called zero-tolerance policy. That story has sort of fallen out of the headlines over the past insane week of Trump-Russia follies. But in one case after another, the administration is getting absolutely pounded by federal judges, sort of uh, from coast to coast and uh, from the left to the right, uh, Republican and Democratic federal judges alike. We will be joined momentarily by reporter Alice Olstein, who has been covering all of these cases very closely at TPM uh, for the latest on that and to find out if there's any chance that the administration will actually meet the upcoming deadline to reunite those uh, families with thousands of children amidst uh, so many of these heartbreaking stories of children ripped from their parents and, yes, imprisoned for months by this administration. Sadly, the headlines have gone away over the past week, but the uh, truth of the situation, the stories have not. So we'll try to make make up for some of that today shortly. And apologies to those who uh, listen to the broadcast via podcast RSS subscription feed, but who did not properly receive our previous broadcast until this morning. 
Uh, and of course, I'd love to blame Desi Doyen, <laughs> but not my fault. But this time. not your fault this time. Uh, I hope you will still have time to listen to our previous show because it was a very important show uh, regarding widely, wildly vulnerable remote access software that is included, incredibly enough, on many of America's electronic voting and tabulation systems. It has been included for many years. We have been reporting on that for many years in many different ways. But the company, the nation's top electronic voting system vendor, Election Systems and Software Inc., otherwise known as ESNS, uh, as we discussed yesterday, apparently they lied. They just blatantly lied to The New York Times earlier this year, saying that they never included such remote access software which allows anyone, essentially, uh, to be able to get into these systems from anywhere. They claim they never included such remote access software with their voting systems that they sell all over the world, only to have finally admitted that, yes, they lied about that to the New York Times, and they did include both modems and remote access software on their uh, election management system. Still in use today uh, around the country in many jurisdictions. They say, yes, well, OK, well, we did. And we said we never did. But in fact, we did. Yes, for six years from 2000 to 2006. Many of those systems are still in use today. Uh, that admission from ESNS came in a recent letter that the company sent in response to Senator Ron Wyden though they now refuse to answer any follow-up questions by Wyden or to appear at congressional hearings on safeguarding our wildly vulnerable and hackable, computerized and corporatized and privatized public election infrastructure. Uh, so anyway, it was an important show based on Kim Zetter's new report on all of this at Vice's motherboard outlet. She was the a uh, reporter for the uh, New York Times article to whom ESNS lied. And uh, the, our coverage on the previous program ties together a bunch of our reporting going back many, many years when we reported, for example, on an ESNS system in Pennsylvania where someone on an unauthorized computer uh, was found to have spent several hours inside the system before an election in which all kinds of problems were found on the system, as we document, documented in an exclusive report back in 2011 at Bradblog.com. Yeah, and just to clarify yeah. the nutso quality of this, that person wasn't anywhere in the election offices. That person was someplace else. They were else. somewhere else. We don't know where. Uh, they were there for hours doing whatever they want. Uh, and then, of course, the the particular ESNS systems that they use in uh, in Pennsylvania have uh, absolutely no so-called paper trail at all. They're on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And they've been using these now for over a decade. Uh, anyway, I think it was an important show and uh, I've got a follow up here I want to get to in a moment. Uh, but the podcast delivery was uh, it should have gotten out to everyone who listens via RSS feed, uh, but it was held up thanks to ESNS. <laughs> Sort yes. of. The ampersand, apparently, in the company's name actually appears to have choked our RSS feed file that is used to automatically send out those podcasts. So we have now fixed that finally. But apologies for the delay in getting that show out to you. 
As I say, it was a very important show, and uh, as we are just under three months out from the midterm elections, you guys need to be as informed as possible, both before, during, and after we get there. So if you otherwise miss that show, you can get it at your favorite podcast sites now, uh, but also, as always, uh, for free at bradblog.com, where the show is headlined, Blinking Red, Top Election Vendor ESNS Lied About Remote Access Software. And on that point, an update from Kim Zetter. Today on, on the Twitters, she posted a response, or at least an email, that is being sent out to customers of ESNS. In response to the story that she published, she says uh, she's attached the response below. She included her uh, response to it. So we'll sort of go back and forth between what ESNS is telling their customers. And when we say customers, we're talking about jurisdi- election jurisdictions, uh, counties and cities around the country who use their crappy hackable systems. All right. Uh, so uh, ESNS writes, Dear Valued Customer. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Already you're laughing? Yes. Not very personal, is it? Dear valued customer, you may be aware that news articles have been published today with information regarding remote access software used in the past by ESNS. Unfortunately, some of the news coverage implies that the use of remote access software for technical support is new information, when, in fact, as you likely know, this was a common practice in the industry in the past, and this software has nothing to do with voting machines. Okay, well, uh, before I get to Kim's response, I'll uh, share my uh, thoughts. Yes, it, it has been uh, known. It was a practice. It seems that it wasn't just ESNS, but also Diebold, Dominion, Heart Inner Civic may have also included this sort of remote access software. And it is unclear which systems used in all 50 states still have this software on it. They don't, apparently, they say they don't include it anymore, but they won't show up to congressional hearings to talk about it. Uh, ESNS and the other companies refuse to answer Ron Wyden's further questions on this. And when they say this software has nothing to do with voting machines, you'll be shocked to learn that ESNS is simply lying. As uh, Zetter responds, she says ESNS said it installed the remote access software on its election management systems. Election management systems are used to program voting machines before each election. So installing PC Anywhere, which is the name of the software, the remote access software they used, on an election management system has a lot to do with the voting machines, which they say it has nothing to do with. has a lot to do with the voting machines since an attacker can use PC Anywhere to compromise what then gets installed on voting machines when they're programmed. And I'm glad she is speaking to this because this has been coming up a lot lately and it's coming up from Democrats. It's coming up from uh, supposedly good guys at the Department of Homeland Security and at the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, who just last week in that hearing with Ron Wyden actually said, well, you know, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to hack an election because voting machines are not connected to the Internet. 
This is the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission telling this, saying this in testimony in Congress just a week or so ago. The U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, the EAC, is responsible for voting system standards, for federal uh, stand, developing federal standards that are used by uh, jurisdictions around the country. And they are out telling the public that voting machines are never connected to the Internet. And that is just completely untrue. In fact, uh, many of these machines are uh, can be connected directly to the Internet, but they are all programmed by computers that are connected to the Internet. And if you've been paying any attention to our reporting over the last week or, let's say, over the last decade, uh, but particularly over the last week, um, since these indictments of uh, uh, 12 uh, Russian intelligence, military intelligence officials, you know that allegedly these uh, various actors, foreign actors, have accessed uh, voter registration systems, the actual computers of election officials, state and local election officials, and implanted malware on some of those systems. And once they have the malware on those systems... They can do anything uh, to the programming that is on those machines, which is then passed to the actual voting machines. So if you actually talk to computer scientists and voting machine experts, they will tell you that, yes, um, when the EAC says no machines are connected, voting machines are connected to the Internet. In fact, all of these systems are, in fact, connected to the Internet. ESNS goes on to say in their letter to valued customers, uh, in fact, ESNS voting machines across the nation do not have any form of remote access capability. ESNS has never installed remote connection software on any vote tabulation device it has ever delivered to a customer, nor has it ever been possible to do so. Uh, Kim Zetter notes that ESNS is parsing words here. An election management system is a tabulation system. It aggregates and tabulates all the votes that are collected from the actual voting machines after the election. She says by saying that it has never installed this software on a tabulation device, apparently referring to voting machines, uh, the wording there confuses the issue, and I would suggest that is no accident. That's what ESNS does. That's what all of these voting machine companies do, at least in my experience of covering them and their continuous lies for more than 15 years. Yeah, they're banking on the idea that, you know, elections officials are just normal people. They're not all cybersecurity experts. They're banking on them not really understanding the parsing of these words that are misleading uh, and, and try to make ES&S sound like, oh, we didn't do anything. No, it's and you have nothing to worry about. It's that dastardly Kim Zetter in the New York Times misreporting the truth. They might as well have said, this. you may have seen the fake news this week about our voting systems. Anyway, uh, Zetter goes on to say it may be true that it's not possible to install PC anywhere on the voting machine itself. Not sure that's true, but uh, it may be uh, true that it's not possible. Uh, but that's not what the story, what her story said or what ESNS admitted to doing. It did admit to installing PC Anywhere on the election management system that tabulates votes. The election management system 
does everything. It takes all of the vote. It does, well, first, that's where uh, you use it to program the ballots, the the actual ballots that people use on these systems, whether it's a touchscreen system or a paper-based optical scan system. You use the election management system to program all of these things. The election management system is attached to the Internet. And then that system is used to tabulate all the votes. If you can access that system, you can flip election results in 30 seconds time. And it is almost impossible to think that anyone will ever notice, because if you listen to this show for many years, you know how impossible it is for uh, people, for human beings to actually oversee uh, those results, even when they're on hand-marked paper ballots. Just ask Jill Stein after the, after the 2016 presidential election when she tried to find out if Donald Trump actually won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which we do not know to this day if he did. And she was blocked at every step of the way. Jill Stein was, yep. So uh, she says it may not be true, or to it may not be possible to install PC anywhere on voting machines, but that's not what the story said. ESNS did admit to installing PC Anywhere on the election management systems that do tabulate votes. That after lying to her and The New York Times about it. ESNS goes on to say between 2000 and 2006, ESNS provided any PC Anywhere remote connection software to a small number of customers for technical support purposes on county workstations. But this software was not designed to and did not come in contact with any voting machines. Uh, Zetter says ESNS has refused to provide an exact number or identity which uh, or, or identify which customers received this software. Why wouldn't they just tell you? Why wouldn't they tell us we sold it to these customers? These are public elections. Why the secrecy? And I think the answer is because, you know, we have allowed our public elections to be taken over by corporations like ESNS who make millions, if not billions of dollars on this stuff, and they have privatized our public elections, and they keep this stuff secret because they know the products they make are crap. And if it was exposed to the American people, the American people would not stand for it, not in our public elections. But, you know, they tr so they've been trying to keep it secret now for years. Zetter says it's true that PC Anywhere did not, quote, come in contact with any voting machine, but it didn't need to come into direct contact with voting machines to be a security risk to those machines. As long as it was on the election management system used to program the voting machines, PC Anywhere provided a potential way to hack the voting machines. And I should note that is just one way to hack these voting machines. We have been reporting for years on so many others. And, uh, you know, in one sense, I'm glad that people are finally beginning to understand we have a problem here. I'm glad that election officials uh, are beginning to understand the problem, that law enforcement officials, that intelligence officials are beginning to understand the problem as far as being able to act on it or uh, doing anything to act on it, if they really wanted to, they could. Pretty much every state around the country uh, allows for hand-marked paper ballots, at least when it comes to absentee ballots. 
they could very easily uh, recommend immediately that every voter be allowed to cast their vote on a hand-marked paper ballot. At least we'd have a fighting chance of being able to count those ballots after this November's crucial midterm. Uh, but instead, uh, you know, they're uh, promising, oh, we're, we're going to keep Russia from hacking. Uh, wh- what about ESNS? What if they hack? What if they get into the machines? What if election officials do? Uh, Those problems remain and um, the various baby steps that our uh, law enforcement officials, our election officials, our elected officials are now taking, they're all uh, just swell. But they are not going to assure that uh, at the end of the day, after Election Day, that everyone, whether they won or lost, whether they voted or didn't, that everyone who participated and has a stake in the election actually knows who won or lost the election. The only way to do that is with hand-marked paper ballots actually counted, hand-counted, by human beings, publicly, not in secret, ESNS. All right, quick break here. And speaking of stories not getting enough attention, well, this one was getting uh, a good deal of attention, but it fell off the media radar uh, over the past insane week. TPM's Alice Olstein joins us next to fill us in on everything that we have been distracted from noticing regarding the ongoing Trump administration family separation policy, that cruel policy on the southern border. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. She always does. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Trump administration's uneven foot-dragging compliance with court rulings against its immigration policies is now having a ripple effect across the federal judiciary. Talking Points Memo's Alice Olstein reports prompting judges that previously gave the administration the benefit of the doubt to begin issuing injunctions to force the administration to speed up the reunification of the families it forcibly and unconstitutionally separated. 
This past week, for example, in Washington, D.C., U.S. District Judge Paul Friedman, no relation, ordered the Trump administration to reunite one Guatemalan mother with her nine-year-old son by midnight on Friday, citing the irreparable harm the ongoing separation is causing the family. Olstein quotes from the uh, court order that the mother in this case has not seen her son in over two months, that in a few fleeting telephone conversations she has been able to arrange, he, quote, only cries, but once told her that he had a nosebleed, but was too scared to tell anyone. She has been in, quote, constant anguish, unable to eat or sleep, and that having little or no direct access to even basic information about her son's health or well-being is, quote, plainly causing irreparable harm. According to Judge Friedman, while the court said her son is innocent of any wrongful conduct and she is, at most, guilty of a petty misdemeanor. Nonetheless, she is being held in detention in El Paso, Texas, while her son is being held in a foster care facility in New York. She hasn't seen him since May 15th. That is just one heartbreaking story of thousands right now, somewhat lost in the uh, in the media storm over the past week. The Trump administration said in a court filing late on Thursday night that it has now reunified just 364 of more than 2,500 migrant children separated from their parents at the U.S. southern border just one week out from a court-ordered deadline to reunite all of those families. The July 26 deadline for reunification of children over the age of five with their parents was ordered by U.S. District Court Judge Dana Sabra, a George W. Bush appointee, by the way, and now comes quickly following the administration's apparent failure to reunite all of the toddler and infants being held under the age of five that had been separated by the Trump administration's so-called zero-tolerance border policy by the July 10 deadline that was ordered by Judge Sabra as well. Of 1,607 parents eligible, and we'll discuss what that means in a moment, eligible to be reunited with their children, the newest filing by the government claimed 719 have final orders for deportation, meaning, according to NBC, that they could be removed from the country just as soon as they are reunited with their children. Those parents may be the lucky ones. Uh, they may soon be left with the heart-rending decision of choosing between bringing their child back to a violent country or leaving them behind in the care of the government or nonprofits, foster families or relatives, um, allowing the children, at least, to try and stay here to seek asylum in the United States. Lindsay Toslowski, executive director of Immigrant Defenders Law Center, uh, said that's a pretty horrifying statistic. She was speaking of the 719 who are already being deported, the parents. We have had such limited communications with them, it's difficult to know where they were in their own case. Well, today we know a little bit more about the heartbreaking status of these children and their parents, which had gripped the nation and the media and our lawmakers in Congress until the story was largely sidelined from the front pages over the past week, thanks to the disturbing events following Donald Trump's summit in Helsinki with Russia's Vladimir Putin and the bizarre twists and turns that has followed that norm-shattering meeting. 
But while many, uh, including us, have been distracted, TPM's Alice Olstein has had a laser-like focus on all of the court rulings that have been coming down and the seemingly ad hoc minute-by-minute changes in federal policy in response to them. Joining us now to catch up on um, on that Trump-created mess and where it all stands in advance of the next court-imposed deadline, and as all of us in the media struggle to keep up after another mind-bending week, frankly, is our friend Alice Olstein. Uh, she is a reporter at Talking Points Memo, covering national politics, Congress, the administration, and all the hell that comes with it these days, including the administration's unprecedented family separation policy at the border announced in May and just somewhat, I think, rolled back by a Trump executive order in June. Alice, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks so much. There has been, as I uh, describe, a dizzying array of uh, federal court rulings in recent days, almost all of which you report uh, from a number of different federal judges. Uh, seem to be going against the administration. I want to talk about that in a second, but a couple mm-hmm. of top-line items here first. Uh, since Trump's uh, was June 20 executive order one month ago, supposedly rolling back his own administration's policy of uh, forcibly separating children from their parents, uh, while all the separated uh, children have yet to be re- reunited with their parents, uh, do we know for a fact that the actual separation policy itself has been stopped following that order? We don't know. We know that they aren't doing it as sort of a blanket policy like they were doing before. However, there are some legal groups on the ground who say that some parents are still being separated improperly. Uh, a group down in Texas, the Texas Civil Rights Project, told me about one case where a father had a birth certificate to prove his parentage of mm-hmm. his two-year-old daughter, and she was still removed from him. They accused him of showing a false birth certificate, and they said he gave them conflicting uh, interviews at one point saying the girl was his niece, at another point saying the daughter his attorneys, these groups representing him, say that that discrepancy is because he speaks an indigenous language. He Mm. doesn't speak uh, Spanish or English, and they didn't get an interpreter who uh, could Mm. properly help him communicate with the officials, and uh, he remains separated from his daughter. So the group was pointing out they only monitor the one courthouse in McAllen, Texas, where this is going on, but there's courthouses up and down the border where it may be going on. And Mm. so it's been very difficult to get information. And again, she Um, was two years old, you said? Yes. Wow. Um, uh, uh, Okay. Just another uh, disturbing story in all of this. Uh, You report at uh, TPM today that uh, with the deadline now for reuniting thousands of separated immigrants, uh, immigrant families, Uh, Now less than a week away, the administration revealed in a court filing late on Thursday night that it plans to reunite just about 60 percent of the children between ages 5 and 17 that are in custody. The rest, just over 900, have been labeled ineligible for reunification. What does that actually mean, uh, as the government is asserting, ineligible for reunification? Yes, and uh, so they have a bunch of different categories within that. Some, they say, actually the bulk of them, Mm -hmm. they say they're just undergoing further evaluation, and so they may become eligible depending on 
what they dig up, what kind of background checks they're doing on the parents. Uh, They have said that uh, 91 are ineligible because the parents have some kind of criminal record or pose some kind of danger to the child, but they provide no detailed information about that. So uh, this is a major complaint of the ACLU's with the kids younger than five Mm -hmm. and those that they refused to reunite because they listed some criminal records for the parents, and some of them were really low level, like a DUI or in some cases just a warrant, not even a real conviction. Um, And that was what the administration was citing to deny them reunification with their children. And so the ACLU has been trying to get actual details and papers of these supposed criminal records so they can go back and verify um, the other main and, and those are those are criminal records you say in other words would those be crimes that say if I committed them that the government would then be entitled to take my children away from me uh, to keep to supposedly keep them safe as they're as they're claiming well this is what the ACLU is arguing they're saying that if uh, if a criminal record isn't sufficiently serious enough to separate a parent and child in the first place and that should be a really high bar and is in the law then it shouldn't be serious enough now to deny reunification um so that's just been an ongoing fight and like i said the biggest issue is that they just haven't gotten the documents the proof from the administration of these supposed criminal records uh, you said there was other categories of ineligibility? Yes, yes there's another category, uh, a bit over 100 parents who they say have waived reunification with their children. Again, like the case I described, I am very curious about what uh, translation was provided to the parents in those cases, what information they were given, if they had access to consult with a lawyer before signing you know, papers with, with that waiver. Um, what what kind of how was the choice described to them mm-hmm. um and so i think that's also going to be an ongoing fight you uh report that um the filing on uh, thursday nights uh, says that just 364 families with children older than five years old out of a total of 2551 just 364 have been reunited so far. Yes. Uh, 848 parents have been cleared for reunification. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they've been cleared, what's the holdup in getting them back with their children at this point? I'm, it might be just logistics. Uh, it, it's unclear. And so I, I think that those parents, we should assume, will be reunified by the deadline. But I think we are very likely to see a repeat of what we saw with the children under five, which is that many are not reunified by the deadline, even those that the administration has asserted uh, are, are, are eligible. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question. Is there any chance? I mean, we're just, what, about a week away from the yes, deadline? less than a week. It's uh, next Thursday. And, I mean, if only 848 parents are cleared out of more than 2,500, uh, it seems there's no chance that they're going to meet the sure. deadline. Although, there's all, <laughs> again, there's all these buckets now. Uh, there's, you know, those who are just pending a final interview with ICE, and then they could be cleared. There's uh, those that have been released uh, mm-hmm. on, you know, supervised release by ICE, and so we don't know what effort the administration is making to track those parents down and reunify them. 
it's it's just a, a huge mess, and it has been for weeks. And we're talking mostly about uh, the the kids, as you noted, that who were above five years of age, the yeah. younger kids, the toddlers, the infants. Uh, they were all supposed to be reunited, I think, by July 10, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, there were many who weren't. Is there any status update on those youngest of children? Are they yet all back with their parents, to your knowledge, Alice? I think we could find out some of that information at the court hearing that's going to start in about half an hour that luckily reporters all around the country are able to dial in and listen live. Oh, nice. Okay, good to know. So Uh, follow me on Twitter. I I have been tweeting these hearings and and will continue to do so. And you should always follow Alice. She's on Twitter at Alice Olstein. uh, You report that virtually all of the rulings that have come down in the past uh, several weeks by both Democratic and Republican appointed judges uh, have been coming down against the administration and that these judges seem to be losing their patience uh, with the administration. Uh, You you, uh, respond that uh, the administration is getting, quote, trashed and pounded uh, by these uh, federal courts. What have you seen to uh, that, that supports that assertion? It's just been so striking. I mean, you've really seen these federal judges, they don't want to rule against the administration. They they don't want to intervene. They are very hesitant. So they start out saying things like, we're going to give you time to operate in good faith, and we're assuming that your, your assertions are correct. And, and, and that's not because they're uh, ringers right. for the administration. They just give uh, deference to the administration on these sorts right. of it's policies. Just right, it's part of the job. Right. Um, and it just no matter the sort of political leanings of, of a particular judge, it's mm-hmm. just the nature of these federal judges to, to you know, give the administration the benefit of the doubt, at least at first, because they... They have to work. These branches of government have to work together mm-hmm. um, and and have for, you know, <laughs> the history of our country. Uh, right. So, Until uh, now, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just been so striking to see these judges uh, r- run out of that goodwill mm. um, because the administration has been saying things uh, in court and in legal filings that are just blatantly untrue. They have made promises and not kept them. Uh, they uh, have, you know, fit, blown blown past the deadlines for the reunification, and so these federal judges are losing their patience and are stepping in and and having a, a heavier hand. And it's it's been interesting when the judge in California issued the national injunction to reunite all of the families. Mm-hmm. The other judges in other places who were hearing cases that just dealt with a handful of families here, a handful of families there, they said, oh, well, it seems like the the national ruling will cover you guys, so I don't need to do anything. And then as time went on, they started to see, wait a minute, the government's not completely <sighs> complying with the national ruling, so I do have to step in. And we've seen that from judges in Chicago and D.C., and potentially more down the line. What are the actual penalties or the sanctions uh, that can be imposed uh, on the federal government by, uh, for example, Judge Sabra out west um, for failing to meet these various deadlines and orders? I mean, how how do you even penalize the federal government or HHS or DOJ or whoever's behind uh, the, the various failures to meet these deadlines and so forth? Well, they can be held in contempt, and they can be, you know, sued for damages. Um, but, ag- again, I mean, it, 
the system only works if everyone abides by it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't I, even know how you penalize. You know, how do you penalize the health and human services? What, what would you know? Do you, well, they uh, could award damages to the parents for the delays and the missed deadlines mm, potentially. Okay. Um, but uh, but I mean, I think the the bigger picture is we haven't seen a flat out refusal to comply because that would get us into sort of constitutional crisis territory, but we've seen just a lot of bad faith, foot dragging, kicking on the way out, Mm. complying very reluctantly and petulantly. And, you know, what really pissed off Judge Sabrow, who, as you mentioned, is a Republican appointee, what really got him ticked off was when HHS said in a legal filing, okay, we'll reunite these kids quickly like you want, but you, judge, are putting them in danger by making us do this so quickly because you're not giving us time to vet these parents. And so we could be sending these kids back to, you know, scary criminal immigrant parents. Um, And that just pissed the judge off so much. And he said, look, you are the one who separated them in the first place. The you have to solve this. You can do this. You can reunite them quickly and safely. It's not an either or. And you're the ones who uh, you want to send these children back to these dangerous countries uh, where they were trying to escape in the first place because uh, their parents wanted them to be safe. Uh, is the government, has, as had been uh, reported, I think, a week or two ago, are they still giving some of these parents this sort of coercive option of taking their children back with them, but only if they promise to leave the country and waive their rights to, uh, to seek asylum in the U.S.? Well... There is an entirely separate case dealing with asylum seekers that Mm -hmm. that I've been tracking, and so that's going to go back to court next week. Um, But, yes, there's a lot of concern that uh, folks who have a legitimate asylum claim are not getting their full due process rights. And, uh, actually, I wanted to ask about uh, one of those asylum issues, because at the time that the... And, and it's sort of been lost in all of this. At the time that this uh, family separation policy was coming to light uh, a month or two ago, uh, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, mm-hmm. had announced that claims of domestic abuse and gang violence would no longer be an allowable basis for asylum claims uh, for these uh, women and children coming into the country. That change in U.S. policy sort of got somewhat buried by the uh, child separation issue. But at the time, we spoke with a longtime immigration attorney. She said that Sessions can't simply change policy like that on his own after years of, of case law and other agreements between the, the government and immigrants' rights uh, advocates. Any idea, has there been any movement on uh, challenges to that policy that, as I say, has sort of got buried, or is is that still what the government is using for a basis in their asylum determinations right now? I think when the dust settles from the family separations issue, which, again, could take months and months, if not longer, because of claims that certain families are not eligible, but I think the the severe restriction on the right to seek asylum is going to be a huge huge theme going forward. The case I have been tracking is more related to the Trump administration denying parole to asylum seekers and keeping them uh, locked up. Uh, They're not, it's not a crime to seek asylum, um, uh, but they're being held in detention um, for the entirety of their case, which makes it difficult to build an asylum case rather uh, than the past practice of uh, if someone is um, 
you know, not a risk, not dangerous, uh, releasing them into the community um, and while, while their case goes forward, which can take a long time. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, if anything, in the meantime, is going on in uh, Congress to deal with any of this? It sort of seems to have disappeared off the radar. Uh, of course, they could solve many of these problems pretty much overnight if they actually wanted to. Uh, has there been any movement in uh, in Congress or has uh, this, oddly enough, has this uh, kerfuffle with uh, Trump and Putin, has, has that, oddly enough, been a, a distraction from this story for folks in uh, in Congress? Sure. Well, uh, now a couple months ago, but I'm sure you remember, Congress did attempt to hold votes on uh, various different immigration bills and nothing came even close to passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were sort of comprehensive bills with the family separations issues stuck in there. Um, comprehensive bills, but from a, from a Republican side. Yes, These weren't the... Yes, not bipartisan bills. Consensus yes. bills, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and since then, there have been standalone bills just on the family separation issue introduced, but introduced by Democrats with zero Republican co-sponsors, and those are not going anywhere fast unless Congress changes hands in, in November, potentially. Um, although are, are they I just think a lot of people hope this won't be an issue still. Uh, yeah, was, are, they, are they just not hearing from constituents? Is, I mean, I, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like Republicans and Democrats alike were infuriated by this policy, concerned about it. It seemed like Republicans had concern about it. How is it that they're now uh, just letting this slide, not even bringing anything forward? Uh, I, I couldn't tell you. I think, <laughs> you know, you mentioned at the beginning that this has been pushed sort of off the front page by other crazy breaking news and this crazy administration. And I, I think that's part of what's happening. Obviously, people are still outraged. People are still uh, upset about this and want to see a solution, but uh, it seems that Republicans uh, are not feeling enough of heat to take action. Good reminder to uh, call your Congress uh, person, your House uh, representative and senator. Uh, Alice, one more uh, question before I let you go, and I'm I'm not even sure... I'm not even sure how to ask this question, uh, but in, in many of the videos that I have seen of these young children being reunited with their parents uh, while the parents are clearly overjoyed, um, the children themselves, and maybe your observations are different, I don't know, but to my eyes, the children seem to be, many of them, sort of dazed and confused, and they look as if they are... Uh, sort of in shock, in a sense. Uh, I saw one parent uh, said that their child has not been the same uh, since uh, his detention. Has any of that, the emotional state of these children, of course, we saw separate reports about uh, kids, older kids, I think, that were, you know, being uh, mistreated in certain facilities, uh, forced to take drugs in some cases. Has any of this, uh, the, the emotional state of these children, uh, come up in any of the court uh, motions or, or rulings that you've seen that might explain what appears to be this strange, almost drugged behavior I've seen uh, in, in some of these videos from, from some of these kids? It's definitely come up in the court cases. Um, so, like I said, the judges that assumed that the handful of families before them would be helped by the national injunction and that they didn't need to do anything. In their rulings, uh, definitely Judge Friedman's ruling in D.C., he cited the abundant evidence and testimony from the medical 
uh, community about just the deep, deep trauma that family separation can cause and being held in a jail-like atmosphere. Um, and, I mean, this, this is going to affect kids for their entire lives, but just the overwhelming evidence of this damage both that manifests itself in both mental and physical ways, uh, that in part convinced him to rule, to force the administration to immediately reunite the families because he said every single day of ongoing separation uh, is, is irreparable harm. That's the legal standard mm-hmm. necessitating his, his injunction. And uh, have you noticed that, too, or the, the, in, in some of those videos where you see, you know, the headlines, uh, parents uh, reunited, we have the video, and you think there's going to be some joyous uh, reunification, and the parents are overjoyed, but the kids just have this traumatized, non-responsive uh, look in their face. Uh, have you noticed I that? I mean, I, I cannot imagine being either the parent. I cannot imagine the pain of being either the parent or the child in this situation, and just the confusion and mm. the the pain, and we've had some really great reporting. Um, I'm thinking of some uh, New York Times and ProPublica reports in particular about the rules the kids are forced to uh, follow in these detention centers, including they're un they're um, banned from from touching or hugging one another, and just to mm. be denied that necess- necessity of human mm-hmm. contact for for months must just the, the damage that is going to cause for their entire lives is unimaginable. It is. And yeah, it is months at a time. Alice Holstein, uh, really appreciate your, uh, as I say, dizzying coverage of all of this uh, as it, it continues to move forward, even as we all get distracted with so many other nightmares. Follow Alice's important work at TalkingPointsMemo.com. As she said, follow her on the Twitters. At Alice Olstein. Uh, greatly appreciate your work here and uh, joining us to talk about it today, Alice. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll talk to you soon, I suspect. Okay, quick break, and we're back with uh, a couple of uh, mm, couple of disturbing uh, stories. Extreme weather uh, in uh, in the Midwest has been particularly deadly. We'll come back with that right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Um, so, yeah, as noted, extreme weather has been very deadly uh, over the past 24 hours. The tourist town of Branson, Missouri, is in mourning for more than a dozen sightseers who were killed when an amphibious boat, so-called duck boat, capsized and sank in stormy weather in the deadliest such accident in almost two decades. Divers uh, have now found uh, 17 bodies in Table Rock Lake near Branson, including nine people from the same family. 
the uh, as well as the crew member who was uh, driving the amphibious boat. Authorities blamed thunderstorms and winds that approached hurricane strength. A full investigation is underway. Um, now, I've been to uh, Table Rock Lake. We've been there. Yep. Uh, and I've been there many times in my life, having grown up in Missouri. It's a calm and beautiful, clear lake. I can't um, even imagine waves that would be large enough to swamp a boat in a storm. But apparently that happened on uh, on Thursday evening. Tricia Ayers said she understood how the boat got caught on the lake because the weather on Thursday, she says, changed in 10 minutes. From sunshine to gale force winds that bent traffic signs. The risk of heavy weather was apparent hours before the boat left shore. The weather service station in Springfield had issued a severe thunderstorm watch for its immediate area Thursday, saying conditions were ripe for winds of 70 miles per hour. 70 miles per hour? Yeah, when you see the but video. But not a, not a tornado, but... Just yeah. A storm? Yeah. Yeah. When you see the video, you can see there's um, some very uh, disturbing videos of the boats that were out on the water, the two duck boats trying to mightily to overcome the waves and the strong headwinds to get to shore. And one of them was not able to. But but 70 miles per hour. Is yes. that normal in a storm that does not include a, uh, a tornado? Uh, yes. It, it can. Uh, it can be. Well, it was. And it came out of nowhere. Uh, the uh, Weather Service then followed up. They had given that watch. Then they followed up with a uh, severe thunderstorm warning for three counties, including Branson and the lake. Uh, Suzanne Smagala with Ripley Entertainment, which owns the Ride the Ducks uh, vehicles in Branson, said the company is working with authorities. She said this was the company's only accident in more than 40 years of operation. The boat was carrying 29 passengers, two crew members. Uh, uh, Braden Malosky of uh, Hera, Oklahoma, was on vacation with family when he boarded a replica 19th century paddle wheeler known as the Branson Bell on the same lake just before the storm hit. Remember the Branson Bell? That, yes. That old... Uh, Riverboat, uh, he said at the time the lake was calm and no one was worried about the weather, but then suddenly it got very dark. Authorities had not publicly identified the dead, but said they included a one-year-old child. These uh, duck boats apparently have been involved in other serious accidents going back uh, to 1999, having killed more than 40 people. Andrew Duffy, a Philadelphia attorney who has handled litigation regarding these things, said duck boats are death traps. They're not fit for water or land because they are half car and half boats. They were originally designed for the military, specifically to transport troops and supplies in World War II, uh, and then later modified for use as sightseeing vehicles. So um, a very sad day in Branson, Missouri, which, by the way, is a town that I love. Yes. Um, Jim Hall, who was the NTSB, National Transportation and Safety Board chairman, back in a 99 disaster, he said there is no reason for these to still be used. They should be taken off the market immediately. Thousands of people, meanwhile, were without power uh, a few hundred miles north of there uh, after a flurry of unexpected tornadoes. And these actually were tornadoes that swept through central Iowa, injuring at least 17 people and flattening buildings in three uh, in three different cities. Thankfully, no one was killed by these. But the storms even surprised weather forecasters, apparently when they hit, uh, causing extensive damage to a manufacturing plant, prompting the evacu evacuation of a hospital. The National Weather Service said that at least five tornadoes, five tornadoes,
and likely more struck. Uh, Meteorologist Jeff Johnson said it will take days to determine the strength of those tornadoes and the total numbers, but they were not predicted. Um, Earlier in the day, they said such strong storms were not expected. Alex Krull, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Des Moines, said it didn't look like tornadic supercells were possible. If anything, we were expecting we could get some large hail if strong storms developed. Uh, but uh, this was these were uh, terrible. Um, the worst uh, damage was in Marshalltown, 27, a city of 27,000 people. Um, Ten were injured. Brick walls collapsed. Roofs were blown off buildings. Part of a historic courthouse tumbled to the ground. Uh, a Lion Energy spokesman said that 500 utility poles needed to be replaced. Um Not unusual, obviously, to get tornadoes this time of year in the Midwest, but the fact that no one saw them coming and they got five out of nowhere. Desi Doyen, is there any relation to what you've been warning about regarding extreme weather and climate change? Yes and no. So Iowa usually gets about seven tornadoes on average in the month of July. I've seen that from this storm system. In the month of July and they got that much in a single day. Yeah, actually they got more. It looks like that storm system could have generated as many as 27 tornadoes. Yes, and but Overall, climate scientists say there is just not enough data yet on tornadoes to determine if there is a long-term trend going on. So they don't know for sure. They can't say for sure until they have the data. They don't have it yet. There's just not that length of data available. However, global warming has lifted the baseline of the temperatures that we now live in, and that introduces more moisture and more heat energy into the system, and that is introducing more volatility into our system. So... There probably is. It's just we don't have the data to prove it yet. I'll tell you what, 27 uh, tornadoes in a single system that nobody predicted begins to sound like a science fiction movie, begins to sound like... Sharknado or something. Sharknado, yeah. An Al Gore movie. Um, But uh, so anyway, just another problem we're not doing enough about. Add that to the uh, immigration situation that we're not doing enough about. Add that to the uh, election system problem that we are not doing uh, enough about. All of which brings us back to what we said at the beginning of the show. Yes, we are in a national emergency. Doing our best to work our way out of it with your help. Thank you very much for uh, listening today as ever. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you who uh, answered Desi's call to uh, help improve my birthday this week <laughs> by stopping by and leaving us a gift at bradblog.com slash donate, where we rely on you to stay on our public airwaves and occasionally for birthday gifts to make me feel better about working on my birthday. That is it. Uh, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.